Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 69 of the Essential X-Labs, where we're going to be meeting us a, uh, a new member of the family today. A Legacy X character who still looms yeah, somewhat large to this very day. Got some friends out there who uh, consider this fella to be uh, among their very favorite characters uh, ever in comics. So uh, very excited to introduce him, and very excited to uh, move on to this phase of our original 66 here, where we're already through with the Polaris story, now it's time to introduce that other character. You know, that one that's usually paired with Polaris, and, uh, well, you know. But before we get into that here, this is our, uh, I think, ninth episode back from the break, and in the weeks and months that I was kind of trying to hype myself and bring myself, you know, back into the you know, thing where I sit behind a desk and talk into a microphone to myself. As I was trying to talk myself into doing that again here, I kept, uh... I mean, you forget a lot of the more nagging things about the creative process. And, uh, well, over the past couple of episodes, it's become very apparent to me uh, one of the things that kept me from doing this. And it's not the scripting. It's not the writing. It's not the recording. It's not the editing. It's not the sharing. It's not any of that. It's the damn allergies. It's, <laughs> I mean... Arizona kind of sucks when it comes to allergies. Um, they say if you move to Arizona and you have allergies, like from somewhere else, they go away. But if you lived somewhere else where you didn't have allergies, if you come to Arizona, you're, you're going to find them. And, uh, well, that was kind of my case. Uh, you know, coming from New York, I had zero allergies, at least, you know, zero allergies that interfered with my day or that were noticeable. Now, no sooner do I get out here than, you know, I wake up and I can't breathe. It's just, uh, it really, really sucks. So, uh, in recording here, yeah, I'm, I mean, I've never, I'd never say I was anywhere near, um, a proficient or professional in my delivery, but, um, I'd like to think that over the months and years that I've been doing this, I've been able to maybe read a script and emote and, you know, kind of, uh, maintain a certain level of engagement with the material that I'm trying to convey. And I humbly believe that I've gotten better at doing that uh, since I started, uh, you know, recording my voice into a machine. But the one thing I can't control is the fact that my nose is always clogged, my throat is always dripping, and it's just, uh... I could be on a roll with a script or with a thought, with a tangent, and then before I know it, I'm, like, trying not to snort or just have all those disgusting allergic reactions that nobody wants to hear over the uh, radio or listening device of choice here. Uh, I mean, right now, I'll be completely honest with you, we are about three minutes into this recording, and I am on my ninth take because of allergies. And <laughs> it just, it really, really sucks. I gotta, I gotta figure something out because this would be an absolute breeze without the allergies if I could just stay on topic not have to pause, not have to stop, not have to remove me coughing or sneezing or snorting. It's quite a pain in the ass. But um, what isn't a pain in the ass is today's book. It's a, it's actually, um, well, it's something. We'll, we'll get to it. We're going to have a good time with it, I believe. Now, this is, of course, X-Men number 54, March 1969 cover date. Now, finally, after like two or three months advertising it, we are getting a story called Wanted, Dead or Alive, Cyclops. Now, the fact that this was advertised a couple months ago, or a couple of issues ago, it, it kind of makes sense, uh, considering the issue we got instead was the Blastar one, which read like so much filler, and I think it's pretty clear from the fact that this was resolicited from there that it probably was. 
And, you know, we could probably go off into a tangent about, you know, the very nature of filler issues here. As in to ask, uh, what are our thoughts on filler issues? Do we want filler issues? Do we not want filler issues? Are filler issues a necessary evil, or would we rather go several months between installments of our favorite books? And, of course, I'm not the first person to raise this query, and uh, I'm probably not the most eloquent person to do so either, but, um, you know, it's a little bit of a... It's like a certain charm to a filler issue. Um, maybe not as much of a, of a value as a charm, but uh, it's weird, you know. You think about these Silver Age books, and, I mean, they were 12 cents, which was definitely more money then than it is now. But still, it's far different than, you know, a 4 or $5 book that we would get today. And uh, not that we get filler issues today. The books just go wildly off schedule. So I don't know if there's a happy medium you know, we don't want the inventory story, right? Uh, we don't want the one that Jim Shooter had, you know, this coffee rings stains on it because they've been sitting on his desk for so long. And we also don't want to go four, five, six months between issues. So, I mean, I certainly don't know if uh, there's a perfect answer or a, an idealized situation wherein someone's running late on a script or, a, uh, or their art and we need to fill that spot. I don't know if that's the best idea. I don't know if it's the worst idea. I'm trying to think if there have been any fill-in issues that... Like, clearly filler, filler issues that, uh... I don't want to say stood the test of time, but actually, you know, mattered, I guess. Maybe there are some very obvious ones that I just can't bring to mind right now. If anybody has any of those, uh, let me know. Let me know your thoughts on uh, the old filler issue here. Are there any that, uh, that you really liked? Any that were astonishingly bad? Just, uh... Yeah, let me know. We'll talk about it, because uh, we covered one last episode that was, um... Well, it wasn't great. Um, now, Wanted, Dead or Alive Cyclops. Let's get back into this here. Written by Arnold Drake. Pencils, Don Heck. Inks, Vince Coletta. Letters, Gene Izzo. Edit, Stan Lee. Cover price, 12 cents. Now, our cover has the X-Men fighting a pharaoh. Or a pharaoh-like fella, and, um... Probably not one that, uh, jumps off the shelves at you. Maybe retroactively it does, because you know what this issue is also going to bring with it, but, um... Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, the Frankenstein cover. It's like, oh, it's Frankenstein. Oh, it's a pharaoh. Anyway, let's open this sucker up here. We open inside a museum where a KO'd Cyclops is, uh, is waking up. He's coming to. He finds himself surrounded by a pair of police officers with their pistols drawn. They inform him that he's under arrest for murder. How how could that be? Did they, are they are they arresting him for killing a Blastar? I I don't know. How about we head into Flashback Land and find out? So Cyclops, he is still at gunpoint. I want to remind you, there there are guns aimed at his head right this very moment. He decides to go deep deep into Flashback mode to try and explain this current situation, and we get narration from him. He's narrating his own flashback, and he says that it all started on. A lovely spring day. And I mean, I, I get, you know, I get, you know, adjectives here. It's a lovely day, yada, yada, yada. But he's got guns aimed at his head, and he's actually thinking in prose. That's, I don't know, it's very Drakean, isn't it? Now, we, on this lovely spring day, are on the campus of Old Landon Church, where Scott and his teammates have donned their civvies in order to attend the graduation of Cyclops's never-before-mentioned younger brother, Alex. Now, Alex Summers is not only brilliant, but he's also a world-class athlete. Oh, and, uh, well, he's also a mutant. He doesn't know this. Scott somehow does, but, uh, he's keeping it a secret. 
I don't know if uh, maybe Hank has really, really, really fine-tuned Cerebro, where it started to provide, like, government names for latent mutants that it's pinged. I, I don't know. Anyway, after Alex's graduation ceremony, Scott tells his bro to change out of his cap and gown so he could take him out for a brew. And I don't know how old either of them are. I'm assuming they're of drinking age. I don't even know what drinking age was back in 1969, to be honest. I should have looked that up, but I didn't. Anyway, Alex heads back to his dorm room, and suddenly, we find ourselves in an episode of the 60s Batman show. Um, which, uh, I, I know it's not a popular opinion. At least, it's definitely not a popular opinion online, but I was never a fan of that stuff. I mean, even for the kitsch value, just not my thing. And hey, you know, while I have my shovel out, uh, I didn't much care for the 90s Batman animated series either. So, what do I know? Uh, anyway, Alex is ambushed by two of King Tut's goons, Baresh and Malek. Or Malek. Uh, they toss some powder in his face and knock him out good. Moments later, Scott and the gang enters Alex's room to check on him, only to find it ransacked. And it didn't look like there was too big a fracas here, but I mean, even like the paintings on the wall are crooked. <laughs> so I guess uh, that's just the universal sign that there was a struggle. Or maybe King Tut's goons are just jerks who are trying to muss the place up. I don't know. Anyway, Gene attempts to pick up on the mind patterns of the last occupants of the room in order to find a trail. And since this is only a 15-page story, she very quickly does. We shift over to Alex, who's been dressed in an Egyptian skirt, and he's laid out on a slab to be sacrificed by our big bad, the living pharaoh. And I tell you what, the word pharaoh is weird. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this observation, but it's spelled very weird. The A, beco- the a comes before the, or the second A, comes before the O, it just doesn't look like it should be right. But uh, I think I have it in the script about a dozen times, and I spelled it wrong every single time. Anyway, so, yeah, our big bad, the living pharaoh. And the pharaoh, as he stands over Alex, he explains that, uh, that our man Alex is the only living being who could ever possibly challenge his power. Alex also, get this, has the blood of royal Egypt running through his veins. And what's more, every pharaoh in history was a mutant. Okay, um, okay, so we do have a little little bit to unpack here. Um, now, of course, Apocalypse was once considered the first mutant before all the Arako, uh, Akara, Krakoa stuff, right? And uh, much of his origin story is based in Egypt, so I guess that stands to reason. Maybe this is actually a case of later creators playing this forward. Or maybe it's that whole broken clock being right twice a day sort of thing. We'll, we'll be optimistic and assume that... Uh, you know, the Lobdells of the world did their did their research. Now, also, the other thing that I'm thinking here, if Alex has royal Egyptian blood, wouldn't it stand to reason that Cyclops does, too? I mean, it's not like they're half-brothers or anything. Oh, well. Maybe Cyclops inherited all the Viking blood. That's why he was um, Eric the Red. I, I don't know. Now, just as the living pharaoh is about to slam his saber into Alex's chest, he is zapped by the very yellow optic blasts of Big Brother Scott. It might be worth noting that um, Cyclops' optic blasts are yellow throughout this entire issue. And actually, just about every, like, effect in this issue is yellow. Anyway, after this blast, uh, Pharaoh and his goons are confronted by the full force of the X-Men. And it's here where we really really get into Batman 66 territory. It's a pretty goofy fight, and also quite a long one for uh, the amount of pages that this story gets. 
Uh, some of the more salient bits of this fight, um, the Pharaoh, he's got a smoke bomb amulet that he drops to put up a smoke screen. He's got, <laughs> he's got extra goons laying in wait uh, inside like sarcophagi. Like the room has like sarcophaguses or sarcophagi around the wall. And there were just goons in them. Why? I mean, wouldn't it be more helpful if they were just like out there standing guard? Maybe they would have stopped the X-Men from getting in in the first place? I don't know. Um, anyway, Angel, he gets a dart in the wing, which doesn't seem to bother him half as much as it probably ought to. Iceman Protocol A actually works this time as he encases something like a half dozen goons in an ice shell thing. Uh, Cyclops' optic blasts and the Living Pharaoh's energy gimmick appear to... Not so much cancel each other out, but they, like, stop one another. Like, uh, they can't penetrate each other. Like, they hit each other and they kind of stop. Like, the streams don't cross, they don't hit each other. It just kind of... They just kind of stop when they hit each other. It, I'm sure there's a better way to explain that. I just can't do it right now. Gene uh, attempts to bombard the Pharaoh with mental waves. However, he's able to somehow redirect them back at her. This causes some seemingly sonic reverberations to rattle through the... Uh, I don't know, suburban sacrifice chamber? I don't know where the hell we are. Uh, the goons, uh, they all make like trees, while Psyche frees his little bro from his shackles. And uh, this, uh, is worth noting, is the only panel on the issue where Scott's uh, optic blasts are actually red. And it's also worth noting that Cyclops, who's wearing his full X-Men gear, refers to Alex as brother. And so, since Alex, you know, he did graduate third in his class, it's not too hard for him to put together who this uh, costumed weirdo is. Now, before Scott can go too deep into details, the Summers brothers are once again descended upon by the living Pharaoh. This time, he's holding some sort of a goofy idol over his head, uh, which manages to paralyze and KO our heroes. That brings us right back to where we started, with Cyclops waking up surrounded by police officers. They tell him he's going to jail for Moida, and we see the dead body of... the no longer living Pharaoh. Now, Scott, he knows he didn't kill the Pharaoh, but worries that Alex might have. And so, he fires a very yellow optic beam, shattering the policeman's gun before delivering a whopper of a karate chop and making a run for it. The officers pull themselves up, worried about what the world could possibly do if the X-Men have truly gone bad. To which I would suggest they'd probably cancel a bunch of their books and try to promote the Inhumans instead. Anyway, we shift over to... somewhere. Not sure if we're still at the bachelor pad, or if we're back at Xavier's, or wherever the hell Landon College is. Maybe they rented a room? I don't know. Whatever the case, the X-Men, or the remaining X-Men anyway, are listening to the radio. A news alert cuts in, revealing that the famed X-Man Cyclops is currently a fugitive of the law. The police have upped his charges from murder to also assaulting an officer. From here we rejoin Scott as he's, uh, walking through a cave. You know how caves are just, like, everywhere, right? I mean, I, I, barely a day goes by where I'm not walking through a cave. Uh, they're referred to in the narration as the natural tunnels that just happened to be found under the Pharaoh's suburban sacrifice chamber. We wrap up this story with Scott ending up face-to-face -face with the Pharaoh. But I thought he was dead. Huh. The Pharaoh explains that he is immortal and that he has a thousand lives. Well, which is it? Are you immortal, or do you have a thousand lives? That's not the same thing. Okay. Whatever it is, maybe we'll find out next time. Because sadly, we are out of pages for our feature presentation, because we got a backup to discuss. And um, I think I mentioned this during uh, last episode. 
This is the start of the Angel Origin series, and it's, um, so far, after only having read one <laughs> chapter of it, it's, uh, like head and shoulders above the other three that we've read so far. So let's get right to it here. This is The Million Dollar Angel, written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Warner Roth, inks Vince Coletta, letters Artie Simic, and edits Stan Lee. We open with a young Warren Worthington sitting in a tree. Well, he's climbing a tree. He's fetching one of his father's golf balls from a bird's nest. And it seems as though Worry is a fan of heights, much to his parents' frustration. They worry he's going to hurt himself, but uh, he just can't help himself. He wants to be up as high as humanly possible, or mutantly possible, I suppose. Now, he winds up being spooked by a mama bird, sending him falling out of the tree. Lucky for him, the Worthington's new $20,000 swimming pool was just below to break his fall. His parents, it gets kind of sitcom-y. They're like, what are we going to do with that boy? And uh, it's, like I said, he's always climbing on high stuff. And they worry that one of these times he's going to wind up a uh, little more than a stain on their uh, $40,000 dick. We jump ahead to Warren in high school. Uh, looks like he's in boarding school here. There are dorms. It should come as very little surprise that uh, Warren is the, um, the greatest athlete the school has ever seen. And he's viewed as kind of... Uh, a kind of a dick, kind of an aloof snob by his peers, who are probably just as, you know, snobby and privileged as he is. But uh, they uh, mock him for... Okay, get this. They mock him for having wide shoulders and large muscular shoulder blades. I tell you what, as someone who has been heavily into... uh, into the gym and exercise for the past several years, uh, who's been trying in vain to find the right workout to get bigger shoulders himself, I really don't see this as a mockable offense. Um, It's like, if someone were to tell me that my shoulder blades are too big, I I would probably kiss them on the mouth. Uh, Worry, he takes this very hard, though. He is very self-conscious about his very muscular shoulder blades. Uh, We jump ahead a little bit more to Warren waking up to find a large feather on his bed. Taking a peek in the mirror, he discovers that he's got these tiny little wings sticking out of his back. Which, you know, we've known Angel for a very long time. We've talked about him through various iterations and eras. But I don't think we've ever stopped to actually think about and talk about just how disgusting this is. I mean, if we stop and think about it, I mean, there are like wings coming out of his back. That, that, his whole mutation is kind of nasty, isn't it? Anyway, um, it doesn't take long for his wings to fully grow in. I don't have the book in front of me, but I think it's literally two panels. Like, one panel with the little wing buds, and then the next panel, they're huge. They're, like, his regular size. Uh, We jump ahead to one night, where our man wakes up smelling smoke. He exits into the hallway outside his dorm room, and he discovers that the building is on fire. Knowing he's got to do something to help, he springs into winged action. But first, he rushes to the school's storeroom in order to fashion a disguise. That disguise is in the form of a long nightshirt, which <laughs> luckily already had holes in the back so his wings could fit through. I, uh, I don't know. And also a long blonde wig. He rescues all his friends and classmates who believe him to be an actual angel. And we close out with Warren's goofy pals vowing to find out just who this mystery savior was. Now that does it for our story portion, and um, not, not a bad issue, uh, all told here. Uh, the, the backup was decent. Not a bad backup at all, and the lead story, probably, you know, in a vacuum, not the greatest thing in the world, but since it does have, you know, ramifications, and it feels like a, 
at least with the power and benefit of hindsight, that it matters since we introduce Alex to the fold. And um, he will have, uh, I think he has a couple more run-ins with the Living Pharaoh, uh, up to and including the uh, abortive Apocalypse the Twelve deal around the turn of the century. I think he is part of that. And he, I think he goes by the Living Monolith, which I think we're going to see not, not too long after this story wraps up, or maybe... Maybe it's the end of this story. I honestly can't remember. It's a very, very famous cover where the monolith is like crushing the X-Men logo above his head. Kind of like the, the Dark Phoenix one, if I'm if I'm remembering right. I might just be conflating things. <laughs> you just never know. But overall, good issue. Good issue. I'd recommend it. It's, um, if, especially, you know, if you're a Havoc fan, um, this, is, this is one you probably ought to know about. Anyway, let's hop into our back matter here. As I clear my allergy-riddled throat for the 45th time today, uh, uh, the mutant mailbox here. Let's start with Randy in Elmhurst. Now, he attempts to explain Magneto's recent resurrection. Now, Randy, a man after my own heart, combed through his back issues all the way back to X-Men number one. He explains that uh, Magneto must have survived his plunge into the deep due to having an ability to fly. But how did he not drown? Well, he's got an answer for that. In X-Men number 4, Magneto showed us how he can separate his ectoplasmic spirit from his body. To which, I mean, I love the callback, but uh, ixnay, Randy, we don't, we don't talk about that anymore. That's not a thing. Randy continues by explaining that uh, Magneto's spiritual form has the ability to walk under the ocean, just like it did in X-Men number 6 when he met up with Namor. I gotta say, Randy... Someone needs to hire this guy here, um, because he clearly cares more about more than most about the purity of continuity. Give him a job. Uh, now, Stan, he says it's an eloquent explanation that Randy gives, but uh, that he'll be sharing the actual solution soon, which totally won't have anything to do with stupid robots. Next up, we got Howard in Louisville, who is not a Starenko fan. My man. He wants Jim taken off the X-Men and left on S.H.I.E.L.D. He would rather Werner Roth drawing the mutants. Huh. He also thinks the return of Magneto sucks and everybody involved should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, He would like to know, however, the whereabouts of the rest of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Now, Stan writes a bunch of flowery stuff about Jim Steranko, desperately not wanting to upset him and send him over to Brand. Ugh. We got a repeat offender next. This is Masao in Hawaii with their second letter. And this is the counterpoint to Howard's letter. Uh, Masao wants more Steranko, saying that Frank Springer could take over on S.H.I.E.L.D., to which Stan offers a hearty, enough said. Even though Steranko ain't going to be doing any more X-Men. Okay. Uh, Robert Nyank is another Steranko fan. He hopes that Bobby's girl Lorna doesn't wind up getting killed. He's got questions about Eric the Red being some bearded Viking on the cover of issue 51, and yet having the goofy Shi'ar armor in the book. Stan Mayer culpas, and he offers that the cover was a, quote, boo-boo. But he doesn't actually acknowledge that, uh, you know, Eric the Red was actually Cyclops. Uh, Stan just says, quote, Jim Steranko drew Eric the Red without the helmet on the cover, just so as everybody could get a preview of his vitriolic visage. Which really drives home the notion that Stan ain't reading none of this crap, don't it? I mean, hmm. Joel and Flushing, not a Steranko fan. Doesn't like his work on S.H.I.E.L.D., he finds it too fantastical, and he isn't terribly keen about it on the X-Men, either. He says Stan ought to give Jaunty Jim his own fantasy comic where he can really let loose. Stan says that the X-Men is a fantasy book, and that's why he put Jim on it. For, you know, two whole issues. 
Does Stan really not realize that Steranko ain't the artist on this book anymore? It doesn't seem like he knows. It'd probably break his heart to find out. Um, okay, Wayne and Tampa, our final letter here. And uh, we got ourselves a continuity cop who points out in X-Men number 50, page 15, panel 1, Mesmero isn't wearing his cape. Wow. Stop the presses and bar the doors. I hope they fix that in the uh, trade collection. Uh, now, Stan blames the letterer for turning the Mez's cape into a sound effect because it certainly... Certainly couldn't be Jim Steranko missing a detail. Perish the thought, my friends. Those, my friends, are our letters. Let's hop into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as fabulous facts and frivolous fables for frantic fans, faithful friends, and fiendish foes. We're at a did-you-know mode and back into item territory, so I hope you're all ready. Because our first item has to do with Marvel taking over the music world. You see, Doctor Strange appeared on the latest Pink Floyd album cover, and this would be Pink Floyd's second album called A Saucer Full of Secrets, which not only features a hidden pic of the Doc, but also of the Living Tribunal. Stan says that there are at least two other current albums with a little bit of Marvel art hidden on them, and he offers no prizes aplenty for pointing them out. I don't know which ones those are. If anybody knows, hey, let me know. Also, speaking of music... Tulip Tiptoe or Tiny Tim just met up with Stan the Man, and he is a huge fan of Captain America. So the more you know. And uh, <laughs> while talking about the more you know, that took me about 75 takes to say Tulip Tiptoe or Tiny Tim. That's, that's, that one will kill you. Uh, item. Barry Windsor Smith ain't the only UK import currently in the bullpen. You see, Stan also napped Barry's buddy Steve Parkhouse, who I've never heard of until now. Item, Stu Schwartzberg is on Not Brand Ech. Stan says that Stu is a comedy and gag writer. Um, he also worked at Marvel as a photostatter, and um, we lost him just about two years ago in 2021. I gotta say, there's a great piece about him online written by Elliot R. Brown, which I will undoubtedly forget to include the link for in my show notes, but it is definitely worth searching down. Um, very, very cool stuff about Stu. He's a big Entenmann's fan, which makes him... Kind of a brother-in-arms to me. Item! Artie Symex's daughter is now lettering at Marvel, and uh, she actually lettered the feature story in this very issue. It's Jean Izzo, who is actually Jean Izzo Nee Symex. Item! Welcome to Tony Morta... Mortal... Let me see if I can say this word here. Tony Mortalaro. That's not a hard word to say. Why'd I have such trouble? Anyway, Tony is joining Sal Brodsky's team of book-putter-togetherers. Item! The Academy of Comic Book Fans and Collectors has an annual poll to name the most popular comic books, characters, and creators in the industry. So, you know, let's just flood their mailbox with Marvel nominations. Item! We are, uh, out of room. So Stan wraps up with a vale atke ave, which simply means stay well sincerely. Let's hop aboard the soapbox here, where Stan talks about how everybody is a shade of gray. And he warns us not to get bogged down in kindergarten labels. Now, Stan is talking about not just, you know, comic book characters here, but people in the real world. He doesn't care if you're a radical. He doesn't care if you're part of the establishment, a black militant, a white liberal, whatever the case. Stan says at the end of it all, we're all going to march across that rainbow bridge to Nirvana together. So how about, for goodness sake, we just be cool to one another? To which, you know... Wow, your lips to God's ears, and maybe the uh, current Marvel bullpen ought to have that quote framed somewhere in the office, preferably not on a dartboard. Let's wrap things up with the mighty Marvel checklist. Silver Surfer number five, The Stranger Strikes, which guest stars, well, guess who? The Fantastic Four. 
The Fantastic Four always show up like everywhere. Uh, they barely appear in this issue. It's barely even worth mentioning them. Uh, I did actually check this issue out because of The Stranger, and during his bit, it is worth noting that he does recount his first appearance on Earth back in X-Men number 11, which we covered, you know, several hundred years ago on the show. He uh, recalls how he collected the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, how he battled the X-Men, how he took Magneto and Toad back with him to wherever the hell that was. Uh, The Surfer is ultimately able to make the Stranger blink, and he bugs off back to wherever he came from. I was shocked when I read this, not so much for the story, but for the actual, you know, page count. Silver Surfer has a lot of damn pages in it. (laughs) It's a very, very thick book. Um, Next up, Fantastic Four number 85. They're trapped in the kingdom of Doctor Doom. Again, uh, Spider-Man number 71 versus Quicksilver, which we will talk about in depth a few episodes down the line. Avengers number 62 has the Black Panther versus the monstrous menace of the Man-Ape. Daredevil number 50 has DD versus a robot. Thor 162, Thorn return Thorn, no no, Thor returns to Earth after something or another with Galactus. Captain America number 112, tribute to Captain America because he's dead, you see. Died last issue, apparently, and hell, I didn't even know he was sick. Hulk 114 versus the Sandman in Mandarin. Iron Man number 12 versus the Controller. Submariner number 12, the Lost Legions of Lemuria, which sounds dreadfully boring. Captain Marvel number 12 versus the monstrous menace of the Manslayer, which is almost word for word the solicit for Avengers. Shield number 11 versus the Hatemonger. Still. Doctor Strange 179, side-by-side with Spider-Man. Sergeant Fury number 64, featuring the... Peacemonger? Huh. Also guest-starring Captain Savage. Speaking of Captain Savage, in his 12th issue, enter Thompson, Man of God, or Traitor of World War II. Rawhide Kid number 69 versus the Executioner, probably not the same Executioner that we know. Millie the Model 168 is as light and lively as ever. But that's not all, pervs. We got mad about Millie number one, which is more Millie to hide between your spideys. Collector's Item Classics number 20, Mighty Marvel Western number four are both reprints. And in our still-on-sale pile, we have Not Brand Ugh number 12, Marvel Superheroes number 19, and Marvel Tales number 19. And that's going to do it for today. That'll do it for me. And before I go, uh, you know, drape my head over a pot of boiling water to try to clear my sinuses. I want to uh, let you know how you can get a hold of me. You can find me several different places. We had comics history at gmail.com. Chris is on Infinite Earths. X lapsed on Facebook. Ace Comics on Twitter. Uh, ChrisandReggie.podbean.com. You know the places. I, I I try to remember to link them in the show notes. Not that anybody checks show notes anyway, but they're there if you want them. And I do want to thank you all so, so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. It really does mean the world. Until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.